Philippus FM. This program was recorded June 15th, 2021 with Stephen D. Levine. How do we know each other and is there a story you remember of our first meeting? The uh, I think we, we met over a conversation on uh, on broken bulbs or your other your other podcast and it's not a story exactly but I remember how easy it was to talk with you uh, that you were you were so unpretentious about how you asked questions and encouraged the conversation along. Uh, I thought I would be nervous since I hadn't done a lot of these in the past. and instead found myself uh, relaxed and enjoying myself. Well, I I really appreciate that. I I really I found our conversation memorable because you're a very humble person and you were so willing to talk about these mistakes and these experiences that you had and and what you learned from it. And I remember during our conversation uh you mentioned to me you held up the the book that was written about you and uh and you, you have all these sticky notes and notes in the corners and yeah. uh and and I remember you saying <laughs> yeah you're holding it up right there I remember you saying that uh that you were rereading it uh in preparation for the all these podcasts you were doing so that you could make sure you got the stories right and everything and uh and i think you said that your wife was giving you a hard time because it's the story of your life you should you should know the stories but i just thought that level of preparation of making sure you were ready to tell these stories was just really impressive to me and uh yeah i i just knew then i was like this is going to be good this is going to be a really good conversation <laughs> well, the, but, so the book had come out of a month of conversations with the author maybe maybe 6 hours a day for a month and then he had to edit this massive material into something that was a coherent narrative um and uh, as a result i was I, i could never be quite sure what he kept in and what he took out and so i had to go back to see if i actually told the story. i mean i knew i'd said the thing <laughs> yeah. but was it in the book or just in the conversation <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of My Wax Museum. I'm your host Alex Williams, and today I'm joined by Stephen Levine. Every single person I've interviewed is awesome, but Stephen is the first one who's had a book written about him, and that's pretty cool. Having interviewed him once before, I can tell why. And after listening to this conversation again, I think he'll appreciate why too. The book is called Stephen D. Levine: Failure Is What It's All About. And now before I get on to the show, I want to let you know about another podcast I've worked really hard to create. It's called The Creation Stories, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'll throw a link to it in the show notes so that you can go and check it out. It's all about the creation stories we tell and share. And this first season is about the 7 days of creation as told in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I hope you enjoy the creation stories and I hope you enjoy this as well. And of course, remember to make 5 minutes today to listen intently to the people around you. Uh where are you from originally, growing up and then now? I'm very opposite places. I grew up first in a little town called Melrose, Wisconsin, 497 people. My father was a country doctor. Then a town called Superior, Wisconsin on the tip of Lake Superior, 29,000 already a failing town then. Part of actually the same immigration that brought Bob Dylan uh to Hibbing, which is about 60 miles away and it, it is a is a cousin and part of uh, people having come from Eastern Europe looking for work and they had discovered iron ore in northern uh, Minnesota 
in the Masabi Iron Range. And so there was there was work there when in the 1880s when the, the families came. Uh, now I live in Los Angeles, which who knows how big it is. I mean, they it lists its population as as four to five million, but that doesn't include the endless suburbs, which are separate communities. And it's, pro it's probably closer to 14 million. I, I knew I wanted to escape that small town. I didn't imagine escaping to this. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Levine, welcome to My Wax Museum. Great to be here. Great to be here. I, I, I'm excited. We were talking about this escape you know the where you wanted to go where you wanted to end up so so maybe that's a good place to start when you were a kid growing up did you have an idea of where you wanted to go and what was it probably it was formed more than anything by the fact that there were two lithographs that my mother had one of central park in new york and one of paris and and she had sung with the choir with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And she was very urban centered, although she lived, she was born in a small town too, and now lived in a small town. I think uh, I really imbibed the lesson that uh, art and life and uh, deep thinking took place in big cities. And so I, so I needed to be in a big city somewhere. I didn't know how big, <laughs> but, 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 with, with all sorts of different kinds of people, not the, unif the relative uniformity of a small town. Were, were you into the arts as, as a kid? Like, was that something that you thought that's the direction I wanted to go? Or did you have maybe a more, quote unquote, traditional life path expected before you? Well, I, I always was interested in, in music and literature. In our little town, the only movies you could see were Disney films. And so I, I it was later that I discovered film and we didn't really have theater. So it was later that I discovered theater, but I always felt that where I would learn about life was from books and from, from the arts more generally. And I wanted, I wanted to learn about life. Uh, so that was always there. On the other hand, my father wanted me to be a doctor. He thought it was, he thought it was just the perfect thing to be. Uh, you, you got respect in your community. You made a decent living and you did good. What, what more could you ask from life than that, uh, those three things? Uh, so when I went off to college, I sort of in my heart of hearts knew I wasn't going to end up as a doctor, but I was pre-med and English major. And one of the sort of traumatized moments in my life is when I had to call my father and tell him, I'm, you know, I've just done organic chemistry. I can see I do not belong <laughs> in the sciences and I'm not going to go to medical school. And uh, and my father, after all these years of saying it was the only thing to be, uh, sort of accepted it and said, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, although for the next 20 years, in fact, even after I was, I was uh, an English professor, uh, he would say to me, uh, if you want to go to medical school, I'll support you. <laughs> <laughs> Still throwing it in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. He wanted my sisters to be doctors too. And um, in fact, my older sister, my younger sister came closest. Uh, she became one of the premier marketers of pharmaceuticals in the United States. She was, she was the person, you might be young for this, but there was a moment when Tylenol was tampered with and uh, some poison put in and they thought it would ruin the brand altogether. 
and she was the marketer who figured, you know, who sent out notice everybody would, you know, send in your pills, we'll replace them, uh, persuaded the head of the company, he had to go public and say this did happen, and knew right away they had to introduce tamper-proof packaging. So now we got this packaging where you almost can't get the pills open. Um, is that what it is? Is that where that started? That's where that started. Absolutely. And actually, and actually, the last day of my father's life, he spent a couple hours that afternoon talking with my little sister about the latest pharmaceuticals uh, from his hospital bed. Uh, then went to that went to sleep and died. So he got he got some of what he wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 it sounds like. It sounds like you just come from a a very uh, passionate and intelligent family who just kind of keeps on doing things. I mean, to be on his deathbed talking about pharmaceuticals and like still taking in information and learning things, you know, and then and then you've spent your whole life promoting creativity and and finding your own journey into it. It's really impressive to me. So I, I I'm interested in hearing after you switched your major and decided, you know what, English, you know, I'm going to go into the arts. I'm going to focus on this. Where did you go from there? Well, I was, I was always interested in the contemporary as how you'd understand life now, what it meant, what it was about. But having grown up in this little town in the Midwest, it was like growing up in the 19th century. It was, you read in Life and Look magazine about hippies in San Francisco and about life elsewhere, but it didn't seem that you had any actual connection to it. Uh, and so even when I, when I decided I was going to get a PhD in English literature, instead of focusing on what I was most interested in, which was the contemporary, I focused on the 18th century. And I think my idea was I'll never really understand the contemporary enough to make a an interesting contribution, but maybe if I start a couple hundred years back and work my way forward, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll understand something. At a, at a certain point later on, I learned that was really a foolish way to conduct your life, but it took me a long time to figure that out. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, how, how did you figure that out and then kind of come more into the contemporary? Well, I had the good fortune. The, the University of Michigan, where I taught, was so large and that, those were the, the peak years. This is this is now I taught be, there between seventy four and eighty one, which were pretty much the largest number of English majors ever in the United States for those years. And so, and so they just needed courses. Uh, and in a way, in a way, as long as you could attract enough students, you know, they were pretty open about whether something was your specialty or not. So I started doing courses. Uh, either that were thematic with titles like Love in the Western World, which gave me an excuse to, uh, to be both historical and contemporary courses that combine music and literature, courses in 20th century fiction. It really, it really let me explore. Um, often I was only a few weeks ahead of the students because I was learning this material as I was teaching it. But in a way, that's not so bad because... It's too easy for faculty to convey the sense that they really understand this deeply, and the student listens to that and says, "Well, I'll never understand it at that level." Whereas, if whereas if you have faculty who are sort of discovering as they go, then you realize, well, that is what reading is—you discover as you go, uh, and it and it's never done. And so, I think actually, 
was not the worst thing that I was not totally prepared. Do you have like a, a, a most memorable moment from, from that time teaching there? Like where, where maybe you, you know, maybe it was good, maybe it was bad, but it was kind of part of that discovery all the same? It wasn't part of that discovery, but the most memorable moment, there were, I can't even think what the book was, but there was a passage that didn't make any sense to me. And, and I said in an offhand way, to, this was a class of about 400 students, uh, in an offhand way, anyone who could explain that to me would get an A for the course. <laughs> and someone wrote me an explanation. Uh, it, wasn't a good, it wasn't a good explanation, but it was an explanation, and then came to demand his A for the course. And I said, well, you know, I hadn't really meant it. This was a, uh, and so he sued me. Uh, he said, you, you know, you made a deal that if I explained the passage and uh, I suddenly was being sued. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, the university lawyers said, well, you should just, you should just settle it. Just give him the grade. And I said, I can't, I said, I, I said, I can't give him the grade. He doesn't deserve it. He said, but it's not worth he said, it's not worth messing with this. And I was silly. I should have just probably done it. Uh, but then later on, someone said to me, um, you know, every, uh, every time his psychiatrist goes on vacation, the student ends up suing some faculty member. So if you just wait till a psychiatrist comes back, it'll all go away. And sure enough, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. But on a more positive side, I really thought that literature was, was the reason you read it was to try to understand what, what human life was all about. And while I can't give you particular conversations, uh, there were wonderful students who clearly were, were entering it, into it in that spirit and would come talk to me and were, and were clearly searching. And I loved those individual exchanges with these students who it wasn't just fulfilling an assignment. Um, it wasn't just trying to get a grade. It, it was trying to understand their lives. And when you felt you could help a student understand his or her life, you felt you were doing something. What is your favorite weather and why? Uh, my favorite weather is actually very mild. Uh, it's not the heat of summer. It's sort of 50s and 60s when you could wear a sweater and get kind of cozy in the midst of the cool. That's that's when I thrive the best, possibly because I grew up in northern Wisconsin, where it was mostly very, very cold. And so 50s, 60s was, was really wonderful weather. <laughs> Is there a piece of art that you think helped you understand your own life? Uh, yes. Uh, and again, this is this thing about I specialize in the contemporary ultimately, but it's older things that I find about. Um, George, Eliot's novel, George Eliot's novel, Middlemarch, is uh, from the 19th century, is, is a novel about a woman who is trying to figure out how to make her life meaningful in an era when women were not given careers, um, and who is suffering with the issue of how you how you contribute something good in your life, and it and it, it really helped me frame those questions for myself about how you do something good. And she ends up concluding that it's the influence you radiate in your daily life in dealings with people 
that was not a completely satisfying answer to me, although it's part of the answer. But that that was really powerful for me. I could give you other books as well that I mean that made a big difference along the way. Uh, but that's the one that probably most profoundly helped me along my own way. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, especially. I mean, thinking of you as as a professor, and then of course later as a university president, influence seems like a big thing. You know, you have students who who might look up to you, who might ask you questions, and you're able to bring these arts right to to them and and say, "Here's a passage. What do you think of this?" and 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 be able to grow from that. This 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 really in a, in a, in a funny way goes back to my my father's sense that that we all are pretty much the same. I mean, economics makes it different, obviously, and we, some of us have opportunities and some don't. Um, but in terms of what we suffer in life and trying to make sense of our lives and get on with it, and that the important thing to do with life is help people through through the suffering that uh, is, or unhappiness, which is necessarily part of life. In our little, in our little town, there weren't psychiatrists. Uh, and my dad felt... Uh, probably 50% of all the patients who came to him didn't have anything organically wrong. Uh, they were just unhappy in their lives and needed someone they could talk to about, uh, about life. And I, th I, think I, I think I grew up thinking that that was the contribution you needed to make to help other people make sense of their own lives. But of course, that was me trying to make sense of my life along the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> isn't that interesting? It's to make sense of my life. Maybe I have to help other people make sense of their lives, right? And and that and that made being a college president really satisfying, especially at art school, because artists are almost all. I mean, there are some who are just virtuosos at what they do, you know, wonderful. But most are people in search of meaning themselves. And, tr and trying to trying to to make their art out of uh, out of their own explorations, and being able to being able to support that process and encourage it and help people understand that there weren't easy answers that uh, they were engaged in a sort of life quest. It wasn't going to happen that the, just because they graduated that they they'd be at the end of that process that they'd be at the beginning of the process really. Yeah, that is really interesting. What do you miss most about your past self? When I was uh, working full time as president of CalArts, there was a kind of ferocious energy. Things just came flying at you all day long. And I actually, I both hated it some of the times and loved that um, you just one thing after another, just the, the pace of it was thrilling. And I'm I'm curious to hear about what kind of things were fulfilling for you about being president at CalArts. What you know, what was so fulfilling about that job? You were there a while, so hopefully something. I was there 29 years, so <laughs> uh, the, the, there there were a lot of. I mean, 29 years sort of broke down into five year cycles, and each time there was there were sort of through lines that joined everything. But then there were individual problems to be solved that took some years to solve. The through line for me really was diversity and equal opportunity. Um, 
that when I got to CalArts, uh, it had had some wonderful African-American and Latino students in the past, but it was primarily a middle-class white institution. And I just thought this was duplicating what was wrong with America in the first place, that some people have opportunity and some people don't. And that to justify our existence as an institution, we really had to expand who could take advantage of it. So the, the overall pattern of satisfaction was seeing the diversity of the campus grow and seeing the kind of powerful work that was coming and then seeing the, the careers that uh, these graduates were having, um, many of whom didn't think they were ever going to go to college at all. I mean, just uh, suddenly doors opened. I mean, we could help open doors. Um, so that, that was the overall pattern. Then there were sort of individual local challenges. When I got to CalArts, it was, it was deeply in deficit and in danger of going out of business. And it took probably five years to set the, get the finances really resolved to get us on solid ground. Um, and that was a separate kind of satisfaction. Uh, it, wasn't so, it wasn't really so interesting along the way, but it's certainly a satisfaction when you, when you got there or I felt, felt yourself making progress. Uh, then having gotten to what we thought was solid ground, we were hit by the Northridge earthquake that shut our campus down altogether. Here we'd finally got to a balanced budget. We had almost nothing in the bank and we suddenly had a $40 million building project to undertake uh, with, no, with no idea how we would do it. And I think, it was a huge satisfaction to work one's way through that process, all of which, I mean, I had to learn how to lobby in Washington. I had, I mean, I, I learned how legislation worked. I, I learned how, what shot creeps in, in construction. I, everything was new to me in that process. And, and then we, we actually, in eight months, rebuilt the entire campus and uh, paid off the $40 million, which seemed it would be impossible we'd ever be able to do that. Uh, and so that was so that was a different kind of satisfaction. I just think it's it's interesting how, how how you got into this job, and you had to do things that nobody had to do before. You know, you you and you and you learned and and you worked on it. So tell tell me more about it. Well, a lot of it was, and again, this goes back to my father. When my mother would go to a, a department store. My father would go, would find someone, maybe in the old days in department stores, there were often areas where there were actually people who, were, who repaired watches. And I remember, I remember going with him and he learned about how watches worked. I mean, he just was interested in how people did their work in the world. Uh, and he liked, he liked learning things. And I, I, I grew up, again, if, if you grew in a little town like I did, how the world works seems like a great mystery, how anything gets done. I've always liked this process of understanding how things happen, what the factors are that come together that let something, especially let something good happen in the world. Uh, the bad stuff seems to happen with almost no effort whatsoever, but, but, the, but the good stuff always takes work and scheming and who knows what, and you want to know what, you want to know how, to, how, to, how interventions take place that make the world a better place. Yeah, I I like that. What kind of things did you do, as you mentioned beforehand, uh, talking about how you tried to improve the diversity at Kyle Arts? What kind of things did you do in order to 
improve it in in those kind of diversity ways? Well, this is interesting because it's um, first as a president, you have this very kind of both a lot of power and no power whatsoever because everybody else is actually doing this stuff. And you can tell people what you want them to do, but then they go back to their office and they do whatever it is they do until you figure out that they aren't doing what you asked them to do. And then maybe we have a little conversation. (laughs) Um, So a lot of it was just bringing it up again and again and again. Uh, And when you first start to talk about sort of ethnic change in an institution, um, everybody's afraid because they're they're worried that well that maybe there's going to be no place for them at the end of the day that that if this really becomes more diverse then they won't want me to be a professor any longer and so people have a strong disincentive and you have to put a lot of effort into getting people over their fears that it's going to change radically so that is a lot of it uh, a lot of it for a private institution involves raising money. Um, If you want students who don't have money to be able to come to your institution, you've got to raise scholarship support to make it possible for them to come to your institution. Uh, And that's something that, in a way, all the students, because college has gotten so expensive, everybody needs financial aid now, or almost everybody, maybe there's 10% who don't. So that that was a daily task and also daily satisfaction, because when you raise money for a scholarship, you know, a student is going to be someone's going to benefit at the other end. It's not just money in a big pot. It is uh, it's a sort of one to one thing. But then uh, when I first got to CalArts, and this is the sort of happenstance part of it, um, when we were when we had no money, what's in fact when we were in deficit, a trustee came to me and said, I'll give you twenty five thousand dollars to do whatever you think is most important for the institute, man named George Boone, uh, whatever you think is most important for the institution, but it can't be something you were already doing. Uh, somehow I knew the thing to do, and I don't know how I knew this, was to start a program where our kids were teaching younger kids in underserved parts of Los Angeles, of which there are many. And a lot of people in students and faculty thought, this is crazy. You're now raising money to educate students who don't go to CalArts when when we can't afford to pay the bills for the students who are at CalArts. But I I saw that if we didn't didn't have diversity on campus, at least we could expose our students to more of the social facts of life. And one of the ways to do that was to go to a community center in a neighborhood and teach young kids who had less opportunity than, than you had had uh beforehand and just um not be a tourist in poverty but be a worker uh contributing something um so it really started out of that and then also realizing that while we were broke we were actually dealing with community centers that had even less money than we did i mean we were just scraping to to stay alive to serve the kids in their neighborhood uh and it just seemed right that um, whatever we had, we should share in some way and increase opportunity. But of course, what happened in the long run is when we then, when we then, well, I never imagined we were going to recruit for CalArts by doing because we were going to the poorest neighborhoods, so kids who couldn't afford to come. Uh, but of course, you discover these wonderfully gifted students as soon as you look a little more broadly, and they then apply to your college, and then having 
if they've taken courses with you for four or five years before coming to your college, you got to find a way to get the scholarship funds to let them come. Um, and so you sort of trap yourself into being even more aggressive toward, toward change. Um, and then you realize that you have a case to make to donors, which is not just like that you're like every other college asking for scholarship funds, but that you've invested uh, five years in these kids, whether or not they were going to come to CalArts, uh, these young kids. And so you have you demonstrated a level of, uh, of commitment um, that um, help people think, well, maybe you do deserve these scholarship funds. And, th and then along the way, and I don't know whether I really imagined this at the beginning, you also were demonstrating you were a good citizen of the city, that you weren't, you weren't just an isolated campus taking care of yourself, that, that you were trying to make Los Angeles a better place to be. And that attracted other people to your cause. So in a way, though, I think by acting on your convictions, even if you're not quite clear how it all comes together, as long as you stay close to your convictions, um, it does come together in the end. And has a reasonable chance of coming together in a positive way, although there's no guarantees. I, I like that idea of it. You, you put the work in and you just, you know, like we were talking about before, you're helping other people find meaning. You're sharing arts with people, you're teaching other people, and it all comes back around in in the service of you in the community and it and it all works out i love that what is your favorite sound this sounds silly but i think my favorite sound is we have a we have a, a small poodle mix part poodle part uh bichon and he snores and i just love this peaceful little snore at night it's tiny because he's tiny but it kind of puts me to sleep. It is such, it's, it's such a, he sounds so peaceful as he snores. <laughs> I love it. That is so good. Uh, as we, as we lead into the end of the podcast here, I, I want to hear something. I know nothing uh, about you. Uh, what are your hobbies during this whole time? Like, what did you do to unwind? What did you do for fun? This is, <laughs> this is going to sound silly. But I, I grew up ever being interested in having fun. <laughs> fun for me was always learning something. Interesting. Uh, th that that was that, and I I think my father was the same way. I don't. He didn't really have hobbies. My mother loved music, and so that was a kind of hobby. So I've never really had hobbies. I but if I had one, I guess you'd say it's learning more about the arts, whether or not they have immediately relevance to the job you're doing. You know, as college president. So um, I, I, I used being president as a kind of excuse to keep track of what was happening in each of the arts we taught. And so in a way, that, be, those be, that, that replaced having hobbies with, um, with learning things that you hoped would apply eventually to, to the college itself. A hobby probably would be good, though. <laughs> Could be, but I, I mean, I mean, I think learning's a hobby. You know, con consuming interesting artwork and media, and, and trying to really delve as much as possible into your craft. Maybe, maybe that's how you knew you found what you were quote unquote meant to do. Is is that everything kind of fed into it? I, th I think that, and uh, you know, one of the interesting things that's happened is since leaving CalArts. I've got this new post, uh, something in Los Angeles called the Thomas Mann House, 
um, which is supported by the German government and is designed to bring serious thinkers from Germany and the United States together, issues of the future of democracy. And Fran said, what are you doing doing that? You spend your whole life learning about the arts and suddenly you're reading political science books and you're doing this and you're doing that. And I, I realized that at, at some level, as deep as the art was this sort of surrounding motive of understanding how things work. And part of how things work is politically and socially. And so the, the transition to reading uh, political economy and political philosophy and history of democracy and, um, seems totally natural. In fact, some ways I wish I'd read it before I was president of CalArts because I would have been, maybe could have made a more constructive contribution if I'd really been thinking about the broadest context of what, what this all means. That's interesting. Again, with that theme of it all kind of feeds together, right? It's, it's all kind of the same thing and every, everything ties together. Yeah, I do want to, before I ask my last question, I do want to give you a, a second. You can plug this book. You're the first guest I've had on who's not written a book, but had a book written about them. So if, if you want to take a second and tell people about the book, that'd be awesome. Sure. A, a German um, journalist and a specialist in writing profiles of cultural figures has written a book called Stephen D. Levine, Failure is What It's All About, A Life Devoted to Leadership in the Arts. When, when I asked him why he wanted to write such a book, besides the fact that I knew him and he was a friend, um, better friend of my wife, actually, um, he said, well, he'd always written about people who were like, they were like the conductor of the orchestra, or they were, they were, the, they were the people in the spotlight. And that he was interested in writing a, a book about someone whose life was in the service of others, as opposed to pushing himself forward. Um, and so it is a, it is a, I was sort of embarrassed by the whole thing, but it turned out to be pretty interesting as he traces some of the things we discussed today. What, what are the, the, sort of ethical and family origins for your values? How are those values expressed uh, in, the, in the way you work and what you accomplish in the world and your ideas of education? And I actually think in retrospect, the book is probably most useful uh, for the extent to which it admits the sort of process of making it up as you go along. <laughs> that that uh, usually people who are successful don't talk a lot about how doubtful they were about what they were doing. Uh, and this book is full of, uh, of, uh, of doubts and yet working through and trying to get something significant done. So I think especially for young cultural leaders, it would be, could be helpful book. Yeah. Plus it's a nice story. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, everybody likes a good story. So just so Stephen D. Levine, failure is what it's all about. It's it's uh, best place to get it is Amazon. Perfect. Uh, and if you and if you wait just a bit, up to now there hasn't been an ebook version. Now there is an ebook version in Germany where this was first published, um, and I, I assume that soon there'll be an ebook version on Amazon, which will reduce the price somewhat. And because it's a very handsome book, lots of photographs and stuff, it's a little pricey. So it'd be nice if we could have a less expensive way to get it. Yeah, it is a very, very nice book. When I, when I first got it, it's definitely like the highest quality print 
that I that I have of any any book. It's very nice. And I'm going to have links for it down in the show notes if people want to go and check that out and learn more about your story. But with that, I, I have one last question. And that is what I ask at the end of every interview I, I've done on this podcast. And that is thinking now to the end of your life. When you look back on everything, what are the things you expect you'll be most proud of? Uh, what, what I'm really most proud of is facing difficulties and not running away. I remember after, after we rebuilt after the Northridge earthquake, I, I was talking to someone and I said, when St. Peter asks why he should let me through the pearly gates into heaven, I'm gonna say, because I was at Calais during the Northridge earthquake and I didn't, and I didn't run away. Uh, less about your big accomplishments than about having the sort of fortitude to stick it out and to do what needs to be done. Uh, I think those are the things in my life that I am most proud of. And where I haven't done that, it's where I'm most ashamed. <laughs> I like that. I think that's a great answer. Sticking it out and um, having that fortitude. That's great. And uh, of course, I only one thing left to say, and that is thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for giving me a chance to talk about this. It's It's been interesting. And thank you, not just for listening to and supporting the show, but for listening to the people around you. Before each episode, I ask a series of 15 questions. A few of those Q&As make it into the final episode as transitions. Stephen gave a lot of great responses, and there's one in particular I want to share here. If you could tell the world one thing, what would it be? That you should never be intimidated. That everybody is sort of making it up as they go along. And and they look like they really know what they're doing, but most people are improvising just like you're improvising. And there's really no reason to be intimidated. I've wasted a lot of my life being intimidated when I didn't need to be. The music in this program is by Garrett Vandenberg. Everything else was by me, Alex Williams. If you want to support the show, you can leave us a review, share with a friend, follow me on Instagram, or support my work through Patreon. Links for everything and more will be in the show notes. And remember to make five minutes today to listen intently to the people around you.